Morning, brethren. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 24 through 28 this morning. I want you to imagine that you lived in the land of Israel during the time of Jesus. Word had spread of this man who was performing miracles, who was working wonders, and he wasn't just doing these things just to show off or just to show some power, but he was going about doing good. He was going about and he was healing entire towns as the sick were brought to him. And he wasn't just healing paper cuts and common colds. He was cleansing lepers. He was making the paralyzed man walk. He was healing those who had been born blind and giving them sight. This man was doing things that no one had ever done. So you'd heard of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. You heard that no one had ever spoken like this man, that he spoke with authority, that he spoke with gracious words. And you heard that he spoke against the religious teachers of the day, that he spoke to expose their hypocrisy. He called for true religion. You heard that he was casting out demons from all the demon oppressed. And now you hear he's going to be passing through a village nearby. So what do you do? Well, you leave town, right? Maybe you have time to get some things together. Maybe you don't. You go, you take your family. Jesus of Nazareth has been the talk of the town. He's been the talk of the entire nation. More than that, there are surrounding nations flocking to Israel so that they can come and hear and see this man, Jesus of Nazareth, right? You wouldn't miss this for anything. What's he going to say? What sort of signs is he going to do? Remember Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he couldn't. Right? There was a great crowd, and he was too short. So what did he do? Well, he went home. No, he didn't go home. He ran ahead of the crowd. He climbed up into a tree to go and see Jesus. Right? Remember the paralyzed man, the four friends who were carrying him in. They come up to the house where Jesus is teaching, and there's a great crowd there as well, very densely packed, and they can't even get to the house. They can't even get to the door. So did they turn around and go home and say, well, maybe another day? No, they went around the crowd, went on top of the house, climbed in. They made a hole in the roof and lowered him down through the roof, right? These people are running, climbing trees, making holes in roofs. People wanted to see Jesus. They had to get to this man. And you want to see Jesus too. So you travel to this nearby village and there's loads of people there. You see some tax collectors. You see the social outcasts. You might even see some Gentiles who have been traveling all day to get there. And people are just crying out, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, show us a sign. And then he begins to speak. Right? He's here. He doesn't look like anything special, but he's here. This is what you've been waiting for. And this is what he says, and we'll read from our text here. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Wow. No one probably expected to hear those words. 
Maybe you traveled a long distance expecting to see some, some great signs and to hear from this man who you thought might be the one who would deliver you, who would deliver your people, your country from Roman oppression. And he declares that no one can be his disciple unless he denies himself and takes up his cross and follows him. These are hard words. These are sobering words. Oftentimes the crowds would marvel at the works of Jesus. Shortly before this in Matthew 15, verse 31, it says that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. So they rightly marveled at the things that Jesus was doing, and they recognized that no one had ever done these things that he did. But when he would open his mouth and speak of what it cost to follow him, well, many were no longer interested. They didn't so much care for the signs anymore once he began to speak. Right? And so they would choose to turn back and no longer walk with him after hearing some hard sayings. And so Jesus would say things like, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He spoke in, in ways that were extremely offensive to the natural man. So I want us to consider this morning what Jesus says to you if you would come after him, if you would follow him. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to you. I had you imagine being part of the crowd that day, hearing these words in person, but just as surely as he spoke to the masses as he was here on earth, he speaks to us now. He speaks to us today through his word. So this passage isn't just FYI. It's not just for your information. Especially if you're maybe preparing even to teach from it. You're going to teach the church, you're going to teach the Sunday school, you're going to teach your own children. You can begin to study it, right? And you start making connections from other scripture passages. And, and this is a good thing. But first and foremost, even before we begin to do something like that, we need to hear this as to our own hearts. Have this to confront your own heart, to come to your own ears. Jesus says these things to you. He says this to me. Scripture is not impersonal. And it's not just to you when you read a verse and then you feel good after reading it. It's always directed at your own heart. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. Let's pray and then we'll consider these words. Father, we praise you. We praise you that you haven't just shown a little bit of grace to us. You've been abundantly gracious to us in sending your son, your only son, your beloved son. He came, became one of us, became a man, and he suffered and died in our place in a body so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised. We thank you for the riches of your mercy toward us, Lord. I'd I pray as your word goes forth, Lord, you would give us ears to hear. We would consider these things, even if we've been following you for a long time, Lord. We need to hear these words. We need to be reminded. It's always good to be reminded. And we just pray that you would show us wondrous things, wondrously show your steadfast love toward us through your word. Build up the saints, Lord. Open the eyes of those who have never seen your glory and bring glory to your son this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So leading up to this, Jesus had just asked the disciples who 
people said that the Son of Man was. And then he asked them directly who they said that he was. And Peter, speaking for the disciples, says that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus proclaims him blessed. He says that this is none other than my Father who has revealed this to you, the true identity of who I am. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one his identity that he was the Christ because people had their own ideas of who the Messiah is and what, what deliverance looks like, what salvation looks like, what sort of kingdom the Messiah would bring in. So from that time, Jesus began to tell his disciples what it meant that he was the Messiah. That he wasn't just simply a, a great miracle worker. He wasn't going to even really continue doing the works that he'd been doing for much longer. He told them what he must do. And he said, he must, this is what we read last week, he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer and be killed and be raised. They had rightly confessed his identity as the Christ, and now he'd begin to reveal to them what he had ultimately come to do as the Christ, as the Messiah, what he must accomplish according to the scriptures. And Peter didn't like what he was hearing. Right? He took Jesus to the side, and he began to rebuke him. Right? That's, a, that's a very strong word. Absolutely not, Jesus. You're wrong. This is not in the plans that I have for us. This will not happen to you, Lord. And so Jesus turned and said to him, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus comes back even stronger. Satan. Right? Doesn't You'd think Jesus maybe reserves that sort of language for his enemies, for, for those who are plotting to kill him. But this wasn't simply a misunderstanding because Peter had sought to take charge of what it meant to follow Jesus. And he was no longer following him when he rebuked Jesus. He was calling Jesus to get behind him. Peter, you're only thinking of what seems good to you and you have no regard for the things of God at this moment. The things of God must be pursued at all costs. You might not understand right now, but you need to follow me, is what Jesus would say. Get behind me. You can't have your mind set on the things of man and be behind Jesus. We must get behind him. And it's at this point that he turns from only speaking to Peter. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Matthew tells us here that Jesus told this to his disciples. Mark said he called the crowds to him and said this to them. And then Luke tells us that he said this to all. So it doesn't seem like it's just the 12 he's speaking to here. Rather, probably all the disciples, all who were following him at that point. So Jesus says this to any and all who would come after him. Not just the apostles, not just a select group of followers here. This is what Jesus says to you. This is what Jesus says to me, to all who would come after him. And the word for after there is actually the same word that he just used toward Peter when he said, get behind so if you would come after Jesus, you are getting behind him. And we see what happened when Peter tried to follow him, so to speak, from the front. You get behind Jesus, and you must deny yourself. Self-denial. This is a non-negotiable. If you'd come after Jesus, if you're going to get behind him, you must deny yourself. Now this already, this is cutting against the grain of our flesh. Right? You, you might have just been looking for something to do, 
some principles to live by, some checklists to check off, some things to perform. But Jesus aims straight at your heart. Deny yourself. Well, that's not specific. That's a pretty general statement. I think we often want Scripture to be more specific than it is at times. We read very general statements and wonder why the Lord didn't flesh it out for us more than he did. But the Spirit so inspired the Word the way that he did for a reason. And it's often general, I think, because it's about the heart. We look for outward and external, concrete and specific, and the Lord speaks to the inner man. Devote yourselves to prayer. Well, how much is that? Be generous and ready to share. We want to know how much to give, Lord. What's what's the minimum I can give and still be generous and not be seen as miserly? So we naturally want specifics. But when the Lord does get more specific, it's probably not what we expect. Devote yourselves to prayer. We think, well, how much is it to devote yourself? 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit. And we know these are idioms. They're not necessarily literal, but, but here's somewhat of an answer when we're looking for some specificity. What about giving? What is it to give with generosity? Jesus says in Luke 14.33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So it doesn't mean you can't own a house or a means of transportation or clothing, but you must be willing to give up all that you have for the sake of Christ should he call you to share in that suffering with him. We think of some examples of uh, those who gave that are commended to us. Think of the churches of Macedonia. They gave according to their means and then they gave beyond their means out of their extreme poverty. The widow who put in two small coins, which was far less than what all the rich people were coming and bringing. They gave out of their abundance, but the widow gave all that she had. So they, they may not have given much, the churches in Macedonia, the, the widow, as far as the amount, but they gave cheerfully. They gave with hearts full of faith toward God. Right, so the Lord looks at the heart. Deny yourself. This is aimed at your heart. You cannot be a disciple of Christ unless you make a full and complete cut with self. If you want to add Jesus to your life, if you want to supplement your life with some religion, you can't come after Christ. You will not be his disciple. You might call yourself a disciple of Christ, but he knows those who are his own. He sees through those who desire to attain life by entering through the wide gate, walking the broad way, the easy way. Holding on to your own life is really the essence of the unbelieving heart. You don't fully trust Jesus to submit to him completely as your Lord, your master. Maybe you want to try to take on his teachings to the point that you deem good and wise, but you never fully relinquish your life to the Lord. This is why tares look like wheat for a while. Remember the parable of the soils. Three of those four soils in that parable looks promising. Many people have a positive response to the word of God initially. Maybe for years. And it wasn't until persecution and tribulation arose on account of following Christ 
or until the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches manifested, that two of those three types of soils were revealed to be what they were. No fruit. Fruitless. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So it is impossible. You have one Lord, one master that you serve. Before I knew the Lord, I served Satan. He was my master. I followed the prince of the power of the air. And if you're in Christ, remember that at one time, you served him. You served a different master. By nature, all men are children of wrath and children of the devil. This might look like having money as your master. might look like having a false religion you subscribe to uh, and, and you worship a false god. It might look like taking the name of the true God on your lips and then worshiping him in vain, not worshiping him in spirit and truth. At the core, serving and following Satan is living for yourself. You're looking to pursue your own dreams. You're following your own heart. You're trusting in your own mind. You're seeking your own glory, your own praise, your own name. Your life is your own. But listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5.15. Christ died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died to deliver us from living for ourselves so that we might deny ourselves and live for him. Him who for our sake died and was raised. That's, That's why he died, why he was raised, to deliver us from that bondage of just living for ourselves. So Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you would get behind Jesus, you must deny yourself. He becomes your master, your supreme Lord. And now that you're empty-handed, you've given up all that you held on to so dearly, he calls you to take something up. Let him take up his cross. So Jesus is by no means hiding the terms of what it means to be his disciple here. You think of products that people advertise or trying to sell Do you ever find those terms and conditions right up front and center on something? Especially if it's something that they're trying to hide. Maybe it's not not one of the the best points about this product. It's usually in small writing at the very end, if it's there at all. If there's anything there that's going to repel people, it's probably couched in some kind of nice-sounding language. It's probably not very upfront and plain. Maybe not even mentioned at all. But Jesus is plain and clear No deceit, no guile, no sugarcoating here. Let him take up his cross. Let him take up his instrument of death. So we we have the picture here, one who is a condemned criminal, and he's carrying his own instrument of death that he's about to be killed on. He's about to be put to death, and he's carrying that instrument. Jesus had just begun to reveal to the twelve what it meant that he was the Christ, that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must be killed, be raised, And now he's calling anyone who would come after him to take up his cross. Does this mean he's calling us to physical death? Possibly. For most of us, no, probably not. 
But there are believers that are required to give their very lives for the cause of the gospel. So the Lord does call some as martyrs, but every disciple of Christ must be willing to lay down his physical life if it's brought to that. The Lord Jesus took up his physical cross for us, suffered, died for us in a human body. Right? So losing our physical lives for the sake of Christ is certainly included in what it means to take up your cross, but it's more than that. We know because Luke tells us that Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So it's a once for all commitment to deny yourself, but it's also a daily constant pursuit. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day in the midst of giving a defense of the resurrection here, right? The certainty of the resurrection of Christ and therefore the certainty of those who are in him that their resurrection will follow. Paul says to the Corinthians that he dies every day. And he says, why, why would he do this? He's protesting here. He's showing them the unreasonableness of his life if he gained nothing by his daily death. But he's implying that in his daily death, there's actually great reward. There's great hope because there's a resurrection. That's why he's mentioning it here. Again, in Romans 8.36, he quotes from Psalm 44, saying, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is what Paul did. He, he literally put his life on the line as he went about preaching the gospel to the Jews, to all these people who were hostile toward him, right? They were seeking to kill him. They were opposing him. And he says to these Christians in Rome, he says, it's for your sake. For your sake, we we're being killed all the day long. He didn't have selfish ambitions. It was for their sake that he endured these trials that he went without food and warmth and shelter. Jesus calls us to a daily death that we live day after day after day not to please ourselves. The flesh wants us to seek ourselves, to seek our own, to consider ourselves first. But Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross. Consider the needs of others before your own. Don't live to please yourself, but look to the good of others. Be a servant of all, right? No longer a slave of sin and just serving yourself. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So this isn't just self-denial simply for the sake of self-denial, right? There's plenty of false religions that practice self-denial abstaining from food and drink, setting aside certain days as holy, denying the self of certain legitimate pleasures, right? Lots of unbelievers might deny themselves, but not for the sake of Christ. They do it to exalt themselves, not to exalt Christ. They think there's some intrinsic worth in their denying themselves. And so their self-denial really becomes self-exaltation, and it feeds their pride. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and follow him. We no longer live for ourselves so that, here's the purpose, so that we might live for him. 
Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're just emptied of all your desires. It's not, you know, we, we no longer have desires and we just do what we're commanded just because we know it's right. You become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart. He gives you new desires. You now want to please the Lord. His commandments are no longer burdensome to you. And these desires are now greater than those desires that you had, the desires of the flesh. You're no longer controlled by those desires and those passions. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, are required if you'd follow Christ because he demands none other than absolute submission, total obedience, exclusive allegiance. He and he alone is your Lord and Master. He's jealous, and he's not going to tolerate half-hearted obedience. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So to follow Christ is to call him Lord and to do what he says. And that's quite the demand. You can't simply implement some of his principles and teachings and call him a good teacher or a wise prophet. He commands, not suggests, commands you to follow him, which requires denying yourself and taking up your instrument of death every day. Is that reasonable? Is that reasonable for a man to put that sort of demand on following him? That's required of everyone who would follow him. Right? Again, it's not just some select group of believers he's talking to here. This is for anyone who would come after him. There's, there's no hierarchies in Christianity. If you would be his disciple, this is what he says. Right? Children, if you would follow Jesus, you'd better pay attention to his words. This isn't just for the adults. This isn't just for the more mature Christians. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, and it's not optional. You're commanded by the one who made you to follow him. And it's a good thing to consider the cost of following Christ. What is he really asking from you? And it's not just going to cost you something that you have. It's not just going to cost you some time. It's not just going to cost you some effort. It costs you everything. You deny yourself. Think about the rich young ruler. He wanted to know what he could do to have eternal life. What good deed can I partake in? What can I give? Tell me the cost. And Jesus told him the cost. Jesus sought his heart, and he told him to give away everything he had and to come and follow him. And in order for that man to follow Christ... He had to give up his master, right? Money was his master. Money controlled him. So Jesus was calling him to deny himself and renounce all that he had because he wanted him to be his master, not money. So what does it cost? What does the Lord require of you? Listen to Matthew 10, verse 34. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So do you think that following Christ will have you to be at peace with everyone? Well, Jesus says, don't think that way. Don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. Not peace, but a sword. He came to bring a sword. Following Jesus will divide families. It will cost you earthly relationships. Loved ones might disown you. They might revile you. They might belittle your decision to follow Jesus. And we've heard about this recently from a couple young believers over in the Middle East. Two young ladies. I think they just turned 18, if I remember right. They confessed the name of Christ. They were baptized. They made that profession of faith public. And persecution followed very soon after, right? Samar was one of them. She was baptized, and her family sent her away. They sent her to some town to be schooled by uh, some Muslims to try to convert her back to Islam. And another one, Aisha, as soon as, as, soon as her family found out that she had been baptized, uh, they, we don't really know what happened, but we know it was bad enough that she's no longer able to come to the church. They probably made threats either against her or against the people in the church. Uh, so there, there was some very difficult trials and persecution that followed these ladies simply because they said that they wanted to follow Christ. I'd encourage you, if, if you're not getting those updates or reading them, to do so. They're, they're great reminders of the cost of following Jesus. I mean, the, the Lord really gives me strong encouragement each time I read them. And they desperately need our prayers, too. Following Jesus costs you everything. And if this is too costly for you, if you'd rather not stir the pot, you want to put family first, even above Christ, Jesus says to you, you're not worthy of me. Don't follow me unless you love me more than family. And if you think you can follow Christ and keep it a secret so you don't cause conflict in your family or in others, well, you deny Christ before men. Luke 12, 8 and 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What does it cost? What does the Lord require of you? So when you begin to count the cost, when you begin to consider his demands, do you rethink? You think, well, is it, is it worth it? Right? Maybe if you went through what Samar or Aisha went through, you might, you might legitimately begin to think that. Is following Jesus worth it? Is it wise? And if following Jesus is simply setting aside Sunday mornings and maybe one time during the week for a, a, the weekly church meeting, right? If that's what following Jesus is, well, that doesn't seem too costly. But following Jesus requires self-denial, taking up your cross daily, being hated by the world, certain persecution, being ostracized, being hated by family members, throwing away your selfish ambitions, and being obedient to him as your Lord and master even unto death. You think about 
Think about a man who lives with rigorous discipline. He wakes up every morning, got his alarm clock set for 5 a.m., wakes up, eats his breakfast, doesn't eat any more than he needs to, any less than he needs to, hasn't had a cheat meal in, in three years. He trains all throughout the day. He thinks about, he dreams about what he might achieve if he continues training day in, day out. Maybe he trains with others who have that same mindset so that they can spur him on. He has a coach, watches his life, knows how to spot his weaknesses. And then he gets to bed early, right? He sacrifices staying up late rather than watching TV, watching a show, playing a game. He goes to bed, right? And we think of this, this life of discipline, right? Someone with that sort of discipline might be like an, an Olympic athlete, determined. His eyes are fixed on his desired reward. And, and this is completely acceptable in the eyes of the world, right? More than acceptable, this is revered, right? The world esteems these people for pursuing their goals at all costs. Is the life of an Olympic athlete costly? Absolutely. But we understand their reasoning, and, and they do all of that for what? For a piece of metal? For the accolades of men, praise and glory from the world? This is what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 9, when he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Self-control, strict discipline, every single day, what these Olympic athletes do, right? For something that they cannot keep. How much more, brethren, should we be running to obtain the prize? The prize that we cannot lose. 1 Timothy 4.8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We're not just running for this life. We are running for eternity. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is reasoning with us here. Have you ever considered how gracious it is that we have a God who reasons with us? The Bible could be a lot smaller Right, if, if God were not patient, if he were not so gracious, if he didn't reason with us and plead with us, the Bible wouldn't be as big as it is. Aren't you glad the Lord has a lot to say to us? Paul tells us that what happened to Israel, God's dealings with Israel in times past, happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction. Right? So what we have here, it's written down for us. Example after example after example so that we might not follow in their steps for the most part. Page after page of God putting on display his goodness and his mercy, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his righteousness. I'm glad he shows his character over and over again. I'm glad we have such a great cloud of witnesses who has gone before us so that we know what God does for those 
who follow him, those who trust in him, those whose faith is in him. And he tells us and shows us in so many different ways, right? And we have just about every literary genre in the scriptures that God communicates through to reveal himself. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We just sang about that. God calls you to reason with him. Let's reason together, he says, so that you can have your sins washed away and be guiltless in his sight. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Let's, let's reason together. So if you're hoping to save your life here, to keep your life in this world, if security and comfort on this earth guide your decision-making, and if you hold your own life as dear to you and you do whatever it takes to avoid suffering and conflict, and in that way you're trying to keep and preserve this life, Jesus says, you'll lose it. You'll lose your life. The very thing that you're trying to avoid will come upon you, and it will be an eternal loss. Luke 17, 32, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And he had just been talking about the days of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man. What, what's it going to be like when he comes back? Well, it'll be like the days of Noah, when people were eating and drinking, when people were marrying and being given in marriage, until the flood came and destroyed them all. And Noah entered the ark. And it's going to be like the days of Lot, when people were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur came, rained down from heaven, and destroyed them all. And he says, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Remember Lot's wife. What did she do? Well, she sought to preserve her life. She looked back. What had the angels urged them to do. They said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot's wife, acting in unbelief, looked back. She looked back on that city that was being judged. And what were they doing? Well, they were eating and they were drinking, buying and selling engaged in the activities of life on earth, then they had grievous sin. They were doing things that the Lord hated. And Lot's wife ignored the warning of judgment and she sought to preserve her life and she looked back to the city. And Jesus says, remember her. The Lord is coming in judgment, which is what Jesus is going to say here in just a couple more verses in our text. Don't seek to save your life here. The Lord is at hand. He's coming soon. The days of the Son of Man that he speaks of here, they're almost here. He's coming soon. But he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So again, we're, we're not just talking about self-denial for the sake of self-denial or just losing your life, period. Whoever loses his life for my sake you deny yourself and take up your cross so that you can follow Jesus. And if you lose your life so that you can live 
for him, you'll find it. You'll find what? You'll find your life. This is where life is at. And no longer living for yourself, but for him who for your sake died and was raised. In him is life. Right? You won't have to keep looking. You're not going to be put to shame once you put your trust in him and lose your life for his sake. You'll find your life when you lose it for him. It's for his sake. And you think about, think about these words that he's been saying to us so far. These are hard words. Deny, cross, he's talking about death, losing. Gosh, these, these things are not appealing to the flesh. This doesn't sound like good news to the flesh. But those who have ears to hear rejoice at what is promised. Life, gaining your life, gaining the Lord Jesus. This is actually really good news. We might not think of this text as somewhere we would come to be encouraged, right? We might maybe try to just read through it sort of quickly and not really ponder too much on it. Maybe it's somewhat more of a negative connotation, but it's actually really good news. Jesus is calling you to deny living for yourself, to stop pursuing a worthless life centered on you that's leading to your own destruction, and to follow him as he calls you to share in his sufferings, because in your suffering, you're going to find that he gives joy that exceeds all earthly joys, and he gives peace that surpasses all understanding. He gives hope abounding in the face of sorrows and trials. He's calling you to find your life in him. To those who have ears to hear, these words sound like Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Again, reasoning here. Why do you look for life in living for yourself? Why are you wasting your life pursuing that which doesn't satisfy your soul? Come to me, Jesus is saying. Listen to me. Bring nothing with you and follow me, and you will live. Really, wonderfully good news. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Still, continuing to reason with us here. I mean, what if you had everything you wanted in this world? Whatever first comes to mind when you think of desirable things in this world, right? let's say you had that. Let's say you had an unlimited supply of money. You had whatever possessions you needed and wanted. The nicest cars, the, the house, the best view in Greenville, the most delicious food you could think of. You could travel wherever you wanted, the most desirable destinations. Uh, all your relationships had complete fulfillment. Your health, you had no issues. You felt great all the time. You had perfect physique, whatever you wanted, you could have it. The question is, what's the profit? What's the profit if you gain all of that 
and forfeit your soul? Is there anything of greater value than your soul? Because you won't take any of that with you when the Lord comes and takes your life. You will have gained nothing and lost everything. Jesus reiterates the irreplaceability of the soul here. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Answer, nothing. Jesus is reasoning with us here in financial terms. Don't be a fool and suffer loss. Don't seek to gain that which will cost you your soul. You're trading God in. What are you trading him in for? Because you can't give anything in return for your soul. That's no profit. That is eternal, irreversible, final loss. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You think of those words. That's through all of eternity. You have that regret. Cries of, what have I done? What a fool. I've lost my soul. As Jim Elliot put it so well, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You give your life, you lose it for Christ's sake, and you gain your soul, which you cannot lose. This, this is the most wise and the most reasonable thing to do. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is the second coming. When the Son of Man is revealed on that day, when he will come with the host of angels, 10,000 upon 10,000, myriads of myriads, and he'll come in the glory of his Father, his face shining like the sun in full strength. And you might think, what, what is this verse on the second coming doing in a text on discipleship? What does the second coming have to do with following Christ right now? Everything. He's building his whole argument here on why it's reasonable and wise to follow him and to lose your life for him on the reality that he's coming to render judgment. He will repay each person according to what he has done. Not according to whether or not you claim to follow Christ. Not according to a prayer that you prayed at one time. Not according to how you think you should be judged, but according to how you lived. What sort of works is your life characterized by? And we might say, well, hold on. Justification is by faith alone. And we were saved by grace alone and not according to our works. Amen. That's a wonderful, glorious truth. But we're not talking about how someone's made righteous before God here how someone's forgiven their sins and washed clean. We're talking about how the Lord is going to assess you. By what standard will he judge you? And judgment is according to works. God has an objective criteria that he will look at when he judges your life. What did you do? How did you spend your time? Did you deny yourself and live to serve others and to serve the Lord? Or did you call yourself a Christian, but really you sought after comfort and security, you sought to preserve your own life, 
you are concerned most of all with yourself. And if you begin to think about judgment day, if you begin begin to think about how God will render judgment to you according to your deeds, it can be frightening. I I think of this and it, it makes me shudder at the thought if I'm just thinking on its own about this, judgment day according to works. Right, if I'm struggling with assurance, I don't think of a passage like this having to do with judgment according to works to comfort my heart. It doesn't give me the same comfort as the reality that we're saved by grace. But the Lord does want us to have confidence for this day, right? 1 John five seventeen, By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the Lord doesn't want us to fear being punished on this day if we know him. He wants us to have assurance that we have eternal life. He wants us to have confidence for that day so that we will love his appearing, and we're not going to shrink back from him when he comes. We're not going to shrink from him in shame. We see another plain statement about judgment according to works in Romans 2. Romans 2, 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. And then he continues, verse 7, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So it's those who are seeking for glory and honor and immortality from God These are the ones who will endure in doing good, who will, by patience and well-doing, then receive eternal life. So if you're seeking the Lord, you'll bear the fruit of the Spirit. You'll be steadfast. You'll be patient in doing good and not grow weary. And then in Revelation 21, we have the great multitude singing and praising God that, that the bride of the Lamb has made herself ready Revelation 21.8 says it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the bride has made herself ready with her righteous deeds. She's beautifully adorned for her husband with fine linen. She has clothed herself with her wedding garments. But ultimately, it's because it was granted to her to clothe herself. It was freely given to her. The church will be ready for her husband, presented to him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And that's Ephesians 5. Just listen to this language of who is acting in this passage in Ephesians 5. This is 525. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Who's doing all that? He's presenting the church to himself in splendor. And this is how we can have confidence for the day of judgment. Because it's the Lord who is at work in us so that we might work out our own salvation 
with fear and trembling. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship. He will bring to completion the good work he's begun in us. And Jesus says that he will repay each person according to what he has done. If we look over to the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, they give somewhat of a, a different emphasis and they record a more specific aspect of Jesus repaying according to works. And they tell us that Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. So here's a specific criterion by which God will judge. Were you ashamed of his Son and of his words? Why might you be ashamed? Fear? You're going to be tempted to hide your lamp under a basket? Just confess Christ in private? Just talk about him when you're among believers, but maybe sort of blend in when you're out in the world? In that passage where Jesus says that a lamp is not to be brought in and put under a bed or under a basket, but rather on a stand, he says right after that to pay attention to what you hear. So if we're just hearing what the Lord says only and not being doers of the word, we're not paying attention to what we hear and we're hiding our light. And Jesus will treat us like that, that master treated that servant in the parable of the talents that just hid his master's money. He says to him, you wicked and slothful servant. And he takes the money that he had given him and he gives it to the faithful servant. Then it says that he casts him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's, that's Matthew 25, immediately before Jesus' words on the final judgment where he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. He tells that parable. As you hear the word of God, you are getting light. You're receiving light from him. You're getting your talent, so to speak. What will you do with this light? He says, pay attention as to how you hear. Jesus says that everyone who acknowledges him before men, he will acknowledge before the angels of God. So it's not just everyone who acknowledges him, it's everyone who acknowledges him before men. We're called to acknowledge Jesus before men. Men who hate him and who hate us. Men in darkness who hate the light and don't want their deeds exposed. Men who spoke evil of our master and who will speak evil of us. And the book of Acts is filled with accounts of believers testifying in a hostile world. Right? And the Lord gave them boldness to speak in the midst of persecution and to go on speaking more and more. Even Jesus, much of his earthly ministry, he's being watched, he's, he's being pursued by those seeking to kill him. So acknowledging Jesus before men, not being ashamed of his words, will be the cause of your persecution. But you know what Jesus says. He says, don't fear them. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. That's all that they can do, he says. And we think all, all that they can do, I mean, kill the body, that's, that's not everything? Well, no. You might lose your life here, but you actually save your life and you gain Christ. 
But there's, there's also the sort of a different type of fear where you might fear what people think, right? You might fear that others might not think well of you, that you might be mocked, you might be made to look foolish. Think about Peter when he was eating with the Gentiles in Antioch. Galatians 2.12 says, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And Paul said that he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And that his conduct, and then the conduct of those who had followed him and were led astray by him, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So this was not something just to be taken lightly. This wasn't something that maybe just required some gentle correction over time. Paul publicly rebuked him for his hypocrisy and for his fear. Peter feared the circumcision party, and so it led him to being out of step with the truth of the gospel. We need courage, brethren. Cowardice is unbelief, and it's wicked. The Lord says that the cowardly, what's their portion? Their portion's in the lake of fire. But again, the Lord gives boldness. Peter and John in the book of Acts, right? Ben mentioned Peter's denials earlier this morning. Shortly after that, we see the boldness that the Lord gave them as they were filled with the Spirit. They were then going to those same Jews who had just killed Jesus and testifying before them and telling them about what they did to this man and how he is the risen Lord in Christ now. And then they went back and all the believers prayed for boldness and said that the Spirit came and filled them with boldness. And they went on continually speaking. 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Open your mouths. Testify of Jesus Christ and the salvation that's found in no other name under heaven and share in suffering for the gospel. If you're not ashamed, you'll speak of him and you will suffer for his sake. And just as an encouragement, we do these things by the power of God. Don't be ashamed. Why? Since God gave you a spirit not of fear, but of power. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And again, it just, it comes down to, is it worth it? Is he worth it? Is he not worthy of you laying down your life for his sake? Following Jesus in the terms that he lays out, which are the only terms by which he'll receive you, is costly. But the gain from being his disciple far outweighs the cost. Judgment is coming, and you will be repaid according to your deeds. And this also means that he's going to reward those who follow him. He will reward those who have given up their lives to go after him. We'll finish here in verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When, when Peter and really all the disciples had made that great confession of Jesus' identity, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, really they, they hit this high point, 
right? Jesus pronounced blessing, said he'd give them the keys of the kingdom. But then he began to speak of his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And then we, we see Peter rebuking the Lord, being in turn rebuked, get behind me, Satan. And then he begins to talk here about denying yourself, taking up your cross to die. And now he's sort of concluding with this great note of, of hope and encouragement. He's going to come again so that your denying yourself is not in vain. You will be repaid. Your reward will be great in heaven. And now he speaks of the coming of the kingdom. Truly I say to you, some of those standing here will not taste death. They're not going to die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Luke records this for us, that those standing there will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then Mark adds, they won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then after, after this account in all of uh, the synoptic gospels, we have the account of the transfiguration, where the Lord unveiled his glory to three of his apostles. And the, the Father spoke from heaven, declared this to be his beloved son and to listen to him. So we have this glimpse of the glory of Christ and then confirmation from his father of his true identity. And this, this is what Peter actually wrote about in his second letter. And he used this as evidence for the certainty of Christ coming back in glory. He remembers the transfiguration, says that this is evidence that he's going to come back. He says that he was an eyewitness of his majesty when he saw him on the mountain. So this was, this was to Peter and to us really somewhat of a preview of his second coming, the transfiguration, a taste of what is to come. But I don't think this is all that Jesus had in mind when he said that some standing there wouldn't taste death until they saw the kingdom of God after it had come with power. So I think that more than just the transfiguration, I think Jesus has in mind here his resurrection, his ascension, and the pouring forth of the Spirit. So just a few texts to look at here. Luke twenty-two sixty-seven. This is as the Jews are trying to find charges to bring against Jesus. So they said, if, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus is, is saying after he pours out his soul unto death, he's going to be raised to life. And he's going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Right? Seated as king in power. So remember, he had just told them they'd see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Or in other words, they would see the kingdom after it had come with power. Romans 1.4. Paul says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So declaration made of Jesus being God's son in power, when? When he was raised from the dead. Ephesians 1, verse 20, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So the kingdom of God certainly came in power when God powerfully raised his son from the dead and exalted him at his right hand 
and seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The Lord Jesus defeated the one who has the power of death. He, he defeated death. He wasn't put to shame. His soul was not abandoned to Hades. He rose in power never to die again. And then we read in Acts 2, where we've been, that as a result, the Holy Spirit was sent. As a result of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he poured forth the Spirit. Acts 2, 33, says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Jesus was raised from the dead. He was exalted to God's right hand. And therefore, it says, he poured out the promised spirit. What did Jesus tell his disciples before he went up into heaven? He said, behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the spirit came in power and filled the disciples, right? And, and what happened? What happened after that happened at Pentecost? We see preaching, Peter, Peter preached, and then thousands believed the gospel. And this was that beginning of the kingdom coming in power to the nations, as then from, from there, the gospel would then spread to the nations. The Gentiles would then believe and receive the Holy Spirit, and this would mark that beginning of the kingdom coming in power to be followed now by thousands of years of the kingdom coming, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation believing, entering the kingdom, being born again. And since the Spirit has been poured out, we know that the Lord Jesus has been exalted and installed as king. Because Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The Spirit coming in power is evidence that the Lord Jesus has been exalted above all power and has come in his kingdom. So I think this is what Jesus has in view as he, as he hints that some standing there in his hearing would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, until they saw the kingdom after it had come in power. His disciples were eyewitnesses of his resurrection they saw him go up into heaven, and then they were there at Pentecost, and they were filled with the Spirit. So, what's the connection? How does all this relate to Jesus' words concerning what you must do if you would come after him, if you would be his disciple? The call to deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life, it only makes sense in light of what's to come. Right? So the thrust of Jesus' call here really hinges on the reality of the kingdom coming in power and the certainty of his coming again. Let's not waste our lives, brethren. Don't seek to save your lives here. Lose it for the sake of Christ and his gospel, and you will gain your life. You will keep it. The Lord has been raised from the dead in power, He's been exalted to sit at God's right hand. He rules the nations and he has poured forth his spirit and continues to give the spirit and power to all who enter the kingdom by faith in him. And we know for certain that this Lord and Christ is coming again in glory. 
As surely as he's been raised, we too, if we follow him, will be raised. So the exalted and glorified king says to you, follow me. He's coming again to repay and to reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your clear words to us, your clear instruction, what it means if we would follow you and come after you. Lord, these are hard words. These are sobering words. And I just pray you'd greatly encourage us as we consider the certainty of your coming again, that we would eagerly await your appearing. We would long for you to return. Lord, and you would also just comfort us and encourage us for those of us who are in you that that you will complete this good work you've begun in us. That we would just more wholly depend on you and rely upon you. Lord, you are the one who has at work in us. We trust you. You are our rock. You are our salvation. You are our refuge. Lord, just make it so clear to us how worthy you are, how, how reasonable it is that we lose our lives for your sake and for the gospel and that we would do this with joy and gladness. Thank you that you hear us, Lord. Encourage us as we go out this week that we would not hide our light, we would not hide our lamps. We would speak open doors for us to be speaking of you and to be proclaiming the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come in power and you're coming again. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.